Last week we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we returned there discussing verses 30 and 31 in an effort to define ourselves as needy people. And you'll sense a theme throughout this message that it is countercultural, uh, defining people, their problems, and how we would solve those problems as biblical is counter to the cultural, but it's straight from the passage, so it's, it's nothing contrived. 1 Corinthians 1, 18-29, the Apostle Paul is comparing the wisdom of the world to the wisdom of God. And what the world says is wise, what it says is powerful, what it says the elites or the nobles should look like. And he lays out what the world says it is as compared to what God says it is. And God says that the wisdom of the world is foolishness in his eyes. Which takes us to verse 30 and 31, which is the summary, the means by which God declared and demonstrated his wisdom. Demonstrated the the foolishness, the impotency of the world and its achievements. And how did he demonstrate this? What was his manifestation to say, this is the wisdom of God? But it was a man. It was the word of God made flesh. Amen. But he didn't do this just to mock the world or to show them that they're wrong and he's right. There's a purpose that we want to look at. Verse 29 of our passage, he says, It is so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, which tamps us down, but he continues in verse 31, So that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. So we're not picking on the world. We're not uh, looking down on the world so that we might lift ourselves up, saying our wisdom is better than theirs, so ha-ha. No, it's, it's not that. It's so that for us, all that we could accomplish in our own strength, we would come to the conclusion that it is rubbish. But it wouldn't be just that we'd be silent. Well, you know, I'm... I've got to give all the, the praise to the Lord, and I don't want to take any credit. It's not just to tamp us down so that we're quiet, but if we're going to boast in the Lord, then we don't, we're not silent. What are we doing? Praising God. Praising God. And that is the work of Christ to make us, to leave us understanding that we are needy people who have been provided for. Is that worthy of boasting? I'll get some animation here. I'll get some nodding. Like in high school where the teacher would realize everybody had to get up and stretch and do some calisthenics. Marching in place, a few jumping jacks. No, this is what should animate us. So as we dwell on these things, as we consider these things, let it change our minds. Let us change what we estimate to be good and what we're truly in need of. So our passage this morning, 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this. Left up to our, ourselves and our own devices, Lord, we would never come to this conclusion and consider it to be the wisdom from before the foundations of the earth. And the foolishness of this world considers what we believe, what we're saying here today, the things that this body of believers agrees to, that we praise, they call it foolishness. But it's the wisdom of God. So Lord, I pray that as we as we see where our voices have been those who would mock this, Lord, that we would change, that we would repent of those thoughts, 
that we might come to the conclusion that it is by your sovereign wisdom, your sovereign plan, that our righteousness, our sanctification, our justification, that that is the only way it could have been accomplished. You needed nothing from us, but you provided for us. And in a world where we find no shelter in the world, Lord, may we believe these things so firm that we would boast, that other people would hear these boasts. Lord, that you might have a voice in their ear, that your word would go forward, changing hearts. That's how it's done. You've bought us that we might be your voice here in this culture and in this city. So Lord, help us to understand and give us these convictions for Christ. Amen. Last week, we looked at this beginning in verse 30, the, and because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. And the, we are in Christ because of Him, and the Him is, is God. God has, as 1 Peter 1.3 says, He has caused us to be born again. It was not our decision. The same way we didn't cause or decide that we were going to physically be born. It was not, I was not consulted. I just showed up. I don't even remember anything before like 10, so I had nothing to do with it. But even if I could, Romans 3.11 says, No one seeks after God, and even if they did, they would not of their own will have found Him. So for us, our conviction is that God did this. It's not something we thought up. And second, by saying Christ became to us, it implies that we are needy. We're in need. The work of Christ is outside of us first. He accomplished all of these things, and then He applied them to our account. Then He, yeah, then he placed His Spirit inside of us. It wasn't until He was done and the full plan of God was accomplished that then He made that great exchange. And this demonstrates the wisdom, the righteousness, the sanctification, the redemption of God in Christ. As Paul later says in this letter to the Corinthians, what do you have that you have not received? What did, what did we bring into this world? The same things were taken out of it. Nothing. Now, the, the wisdom we have is not insufficient. It's twisted. It's wicked. It doesn't serve that which God created us to serve. It might be good because it helps us if helping us means I need more money or I need more prestige. But there's nothing in this world, there's nothing inside of us that in our own wisdom praises God rightly. We need Him to do that. And so as I continue with this review part of it, this word here that Christ became to us. This word means transitioning from one place, one realm, one condition to another. So He was made manifest. Was Christ before the foundation of the world? And what form was he in? Spirit and in word. But whenever he came, he had to change. So he became something that the word of God became flesh. So there was a change of state, a change of condition. Uh, it could also mean becoming, so something we could see, something that is invisible. So there was a manifestation in physical space. As Philippians 2 says, though he was in the form of God, who is spirit, he took on the form of a servant. He took on human form. So Jesus was not skin and bones before the foundation of the world. He took that on. He became to us and made that plan complete. And as our verse has it here, because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us Wisdom from God. And that the statement, or this statement, is, it's not declaring that 
And Jesus' plan is better than yours. Because it's not like there's a plan A for our salvation and then a plan B. Christ became God's plan of the Messiah of a Redeemer. This was one we couldn't thwart the plan. We couldn't improve upon the plan. We couldn't stall it. In the work of God, the made righteous, so your salvation, your justification, and then our word here, and sanctification, and redemption, so our glorification, God had to take those out of our hands. Because what would we have done with them? Well, in the man's wisdom, we would not have gotten them right. But our passage right here has the reason. Number two, it's that it would be accomplished at all. But what's the number one reason? That we would boast. That it would come out of us. That our conclusion would be, God did this. And the longer you go in the faith, is that not a greater and greater conviction? Because we see that we are more fallen, wicked, and twisted And yet that is what propels us towards Christ. As Paul says that the conclusion of life, that I am the greatest sinner, that's what propels them to Christ. If we had our own righteousness, we would hardly need a Savior. We wouldn't be needy. But God's plan is that He would so shatter our confidence in ourselves We'd be so confused. But that our faith in Him would be so robust that we wouldn't boast in ourselves, but we would be loud, we would be vibrant with praising Him. So how do we live that out? That's the question that we have to ask with each one of these. If Christ became this to to us, is this just a thinking matter? Or does it change the way that we should live? How do we get it from our head to our hands? What does that look like? And if Christ became wisdom to us, that's not like an active thought we have. It's a root thought. It's whenever you have the conviction that God's plan is the only plan, then the fruit thoughts, the application flows out of that. So we want to have these, as I said last week, we're dealing right now with the thought life on how I think about my Christianity. And if I'm thinking, it it may not be like the first thought I have, well, God is my wisdom. You know, He became wisdom to me. But that's the brain in which we think. So if that's our conviction, the way, the, the subsequent thoughts, the fruit of that, is that we understand that the plan can't come from me. That... The righteousness is not something that I need to accomplish, which takes a lot of weight off from us in how we would think, how we would pray, how we would respond to our spouse whenever they bring us an issue that needs to change. Not that any one of us have suffered that, (laughs) that our spouse might know things we need to change. No, it's not the fruit thought, it's the root. So we don't ask ourselves, how do I believe this? We make decisions as if that were true. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us righteousness, interceding on our behalf. So a needy people, we don't need to come up with excuses to defend ourselves. We don't need to blame shift. We don't need to reason through it. Because before God, do we have an advocate? And if that is the brain in which I think, then whenever something comes against me or something comes out of me, I don't run away from the conviction, but I have an advocate. I have somebody who will deal with that. And so I can take it, 1 John 2, 1, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That's who he is, is the righteous one. But what does it offend whenever something comes against me and I defend my own righteousness? What's that born out of? 
yeah, myself. I'm alive and well, and I have to defend myself. So there's great application. If Christ has become my righteousness, I'm dead. And if you found out about my sinfulness, it's true. But I can confess that because I know the righteous one is advocating on my behalf. And this was of God. I didn't have to ask him to do it. I didn't have to go out and give a certain sum. I didn't have to pray a certain prayer. Now, Romans says, God is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. But what this looks like, I, I used an example last week of the Israelites who are afraid of Goliath and are standing back, and here comes the king to fight on their behalf. This one who would be their representative. His name was Bob the Israelite, wasn't it? And Bob stands back just trembling in fear because if he were to use his ability against, against Goliath, what would happen to the entire nation of Israel? Slaves. Bob the Israelite had no sufficient fighting skills. But King David goes out and defeats Goliath. And those who are standing back have no conclusion other than that the king, as my representative, defeated the enemy. Amen. There's our analogy. Bob the Israelite didn't go home and tell his wife how great he is, did he? He went home and told her about what? How great that Redeemer is. Oh, you should have seen it. He walked up there bold and full of confidence and in the name of the Lord rebuked him and then slayed him in one shot. And then we all erupted in praise and we chased away the enemy. We need to be uh, above the Israelite. We need to find that not in our, our public uh, the masquerade that we would put on but in the quietness of our hearts, whenever we're all alone, is our prayer life, do our conclusions come to there's no good in me apart from Christ. I need a Redeemer. If any one of us has a, just a little bit of, well, I'm doing pretty good here, that's Bob starting to get his sword out. Everybody else is like, whoa, whoa. We're not sending you out there, Bob. No, Christ says no. No, put away your righteousness. Put away your defense. I'm the representative. And he goes as our righteousness. He became our righteousness. And if he is, then we rest in that. Which brings us to what we have here today. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who has become to us sanctification. This word sanctification, hagiasmos. It's a Greek word. The root of it is holiness or holy. And then it's a compound word. So something that is holy is to be set apart. So out of the common, things are taken and set apart. The modification of this word is important to us because it is not setting it apart as though now it's here instead of here, but it is the process of taking something and setting it apart. So there's a, a process of being progressively transformed, a process of advancing in holiness. Whenever we're saved, we're declared so Christ became our righteousness. We're declared holy. And at our glorification, we are made perfectly holy. What's that process in the middle? Sanctification. It is the process of taking you from what you are made holy and your progress in to the perfection. It is our holiness. And who does that? That's the conclusion we have to come to is that it is God. It is the effect of consecration, the sanctification of our heart in our life. 
And the definition even includes Christ is He who we are indebted to for our sanctification. Other verses that would help us. Think of Hebrews twelve fourteen, where it says, strive for peace with everyone and for the, and in translations it has this word here, sanctification. So, and for the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. It's this process. Strive for being set apart. So that is our effort as we're made holy and going to be glorified. We have to join in that process. We're to strive for that. Romans 6.22 But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. And it's an eternal life. I know there's a mouthful there, but if, if I were to restate that, a slave of God produces the fruit that sets you apart from the world. So is your life, the way that you talk, the conclusions you come to, the solutions that you would present to problems, are those born out of a heart that doesn't think like the world, but has been set apart so that at the, in the times of need, the fruit that you produce is not anger, bitterness, you know, rivalries, but it's peace, joy, love, patience. There's a process. How many of us were perfect upon salvation? I mean, I have my hand up, but this is just as a gesture, so. How many of us were? No, the process from this verse, the process of being set apart in bearing different fruit, the end of that is salvation. Praise the Lord. It's eternal life. Hebrews 10, 14, by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So it's in perfection. You have been saved, made holy. Now we're looking at the process. Christ has become to us a process of becoming holy, a process of being fit for heaven. So Christ has become a process Yes. Some language we need. It doesn't flow in the way that we would say that. But has Christ become that? Yes. Here's a, a reminder, but it's a, it's a picture. Throughout the Old Testament, it's a foreshadow. It's like the, the echo of what's to come, of what Christ would look like. From the Old Testament, we have a picture of what the image would be. So, the shadow that is cast, this coming salvation, we can see based on the Old Testament scriptures. Just say uh, Isaiah 52, 53 of the suffering servant. While we're looking at the shadow of what this coming one would look like, we see marred beyond recognition. We can see that in the shadow. It's defined clearly. Um, a lamb before its shearers, a sheep before its shearers, who's silent. We can see that on the ground. A man of, of sorrows, acquainted with grief. We can see that physical form so that whenever we turn and we see the image casting that shadow, we say, that's him. I know exactly what he's going to look like based on what the scriptures have said. This is the coming one. And throughout the Gospels, we have men... Zechariah, the priest, who says, this is the one. He's in a baby form, but he says, all of the prophecies that I know that would bring about the king, that's the king. Praise the Lord. The great use of this shadow. But it's not only what he would look like, that he would come from Bethlehem, that he'd be from the tribe of Judah, but also the effects that the Messiah would have. We would know it's him because what he did accomplished what the prophets said would happen. So God says through Ezekiel the prophet in 11.19, I will give them one heart. Was unity found in Christ? I would give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. 
that they might walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. That's the effect that the Messiah would have. Whenever he accomplishes his work, his people would be transformed from the inside out. Has Christ had that effect? Then what we saw the coming one would be, the shadow, the real is here, and that's the one. Praise the Lord. Yes, All right. <laughs> but when Christ came, he said things like, in prayer for us and for their sake, I consecrate myself so that they also may be sanctified in truth. The process that Christ went through, holy and revealed as holy, he was consecrated through that process, made holy. And whenever we're saved, we go through the same process from one degree of glory to another, from a fallen dim image to... And so Christ said things like John 14, 15 and, and forward. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So the very spirit that perfected Christ is now in you. Praise the Lord. He became to us and then made that exchange that the very things that sanctified and purified him, not that he was unholy, but the process of that being revealed is in us. Hebrews 2 says it this way, starting in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. We are all in this process. So by Christ becoming to us, we are now in him. We share in his sufferings, that we might share in his holiness, that we might share in his glory. We share in these because we're in him. Second Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become, there's our word, become the righteousness of God. He became to us, and then changed places that we might become the righteousness of God. Whew. So what say you? The question we need answered is, okay, so that is the root. These are the convictions that I would have, that my God, wow, He is an amazing God and I don't even have all the words to boast, but that's big. And now from that, how do I live differently? How do I take what's in my heart now and manifest it whenever I'm at the water cooler? Or my thumbs going at it online with people, right? We don't even type like this anymore. We type like this. I tell Charles that all the time whenever he sends me stuff. I'll do it on a computer because I don't want to type long emails like this. But essentially, how do we live differently? Because we'd have to admit in our justification, that was the Lord did it. And in our glorification, the Lord does it. But the sanctification, that has the bulk of our daily attention. It seems like there's a, a great weight on us, but as we'll see, the Lord is doing these things. He is our sanctification. We heard a, a glimpse of this whenever we were looking at Hebrews 2.10, that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And later in Hebrews, it says in chapter 12, verse 11, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
So the process that Christ went through was the process we go through that we might be trained by the trials, by the sufferings. Is that what it feels like in the moment? Does it feel like I'm just staying alive? Yeah, often I'll hear people say that, that, oh, I'm just going through trials. It's like, how do you know that you made it through the trial? How do you know that you're more holy? Because most of us, we just like want to be alive. It's like this trial is going to be three months and hopefully I live to be three months older. And then I'll say the Lord did it. Is that the plan? Is that what we hear whenever we read the righteousness of those who've been trained by it? No, the difficulties that come to you in all the multicolors of life, that's what it's for. But our knee-jerk reaction is to defend ourselves, to blame, oh, wait, oh, nope. To not see this as an opportunity for me to enter into the process of taking my heart to Christ and saying, there's something in here that you're challenging. There's something, and you're turning on the lights, but help me to see it, help me to define it, that I might have these things crucified. But he turns the lights on. He uses trials to do that. Paul said it this way in Colossians. He said, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. So he's saying, I I rejoice in these sufferings. The conclusion of that thought, he says in verse 28, And him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature. There's that holiness. Mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. He didn't say, with, I'm struggling with everything I got. He says, I'm toiling and struggling with all his energy. So we take these three verses, Hebrews 2, 12, and now Colossians 1, and we put these together. And the trials that are meant to sanctify us, whenever the pressure comes down, I can't stay here. Okay, it's like something is on fire now and I need to move, I need to go. And as I go, I'm hitting decision points. In each decision point, it is, will I turn to the word of God and what he says or will I turn to my own devices? But as I can't stay here and I'm moving, Am I consi- do I see Christ as that, that finish line, that goal that I'm grasping for? And as I can't stay here and I'm running and I'm running faster and faster, that I am aiming with the word of God to be like Christ. That is my target that I'm shooting for because I can't stay here. I cannot stay the same. And he loves us enough. Loves us enough to say, you can't stay the same, brother. Would you want to be in the company of the angels the way you are right now? Would you want to be standing in heaven thinking the things that you think right now? No, I want to be made holy. When I get there, I want it to be not just a relief, I want it to be a praise. I want it to be a boast. Paul also says it this way in Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what does this sound like at the water cooler? Is that still a thing? The water cooler? No, break room, wherever you go. And it's Monday morning, and what are people doing but bragging about their weekend? They're boasting about it. Do we walk in and just start boasting them down with Jesus? I don't know what that would look like, but... It's these kind of conversations that are in the mind, those are in the root, but how do we make it fruit? I just thought about about that conversation, what it would look like if I were standing there in the break room and to boast about the work of Christ. And it would sound something like, you know, for me, before I knew Jesus, I, I was a rebel. And it seemed to me, or 
at the time that what I read in the Bible, those were the same changes that God was making in my life. I was surprised because that was not my will. But the things that he did, I'm so thankful for. That's not like up in your business confrontational. That is out there to say God did it. I'm pleased for sure. I'm surprised if you knew who I was before and who I am now, um, that you might say thank you for something good I did. I should be just as surprised as you are. It's like I've seen these things, the holiness worked out, but I'm not like, well, you are welcome. No, it's a posture like, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But how often do we want to take a little bit of credit for that? We want to boast. And the more we get in the way, the more we join the Lord with our sanctification. Well, you know, yeah, I did this. Well, I've just been thinking that, you know, I mean, we should do this over here. And I've been working on this, so, you know. There's like this um, Jesus-sized version of me, you know, that I've joined him. No, we want people to to hear us and to see us and to look at us and think, he really is convinced of that. He's really convinced that the Lord is powerfully at work. But if we take credit, it does make it hopeless. No, we want to boast in the Lord. But the question always comes up. I had this this week. Whenever I present, I know what I'm preaching on. So this was on my mind and, and I'm applying it to this guy. And what's the question he's, he said whenever you give him all of the theology behind how he should be thinking and, and the truths that, that undergird this. He says, but what should I do? All right, so tell me what to do. Well, all right. <laughs> Like I'm trying to reproduce myself here. No. And I, I took this from Jerry Bridges, but the process here is God doing this. I can't tell you, so everything I said, you need to do this and say this. And he, Jerry Bridges from the book Transforming Grace. He says, all true Christians readily agree that justification, so what we have here in our, in our verse, became righteous is by grace through faith in Christ. And if we stop to think about it, we agree that glorification, the redemption, is solely by God's grace. Jesus purchased for us not only forgiveness of sins, but also eternal life. But sanctification, the entire Christian experience between justification and glorification, is another story. At best, we view the Christian life as a mixture of personal performance and God's grace. It is not as though we have consciously sorted it all out in our minds, but rather it is a subconscious assumption arising from our own innate legalism, reinforced and fueled by the Christian culture we live in. That we think that, okay, now that I hear everything, God has given me the marching orders, I must go and do. But if Christ is our sanctification, it's as we go... He is the one that has given me the power to do these things. That whenever the Lord would put me there, He doesn't like, you know, put me in a trial and then be like, oh, back up. The Lord puts you in a trial and He's there with you. That the conclusions you would come to, the things that you would say, the sanctification process, He is with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Even in those trials. He's not waiting on the other side of it for you to perform well. But it's these means of grace that Jerry Bridges speaks of that are the means by which that holiness is accomplished. So what must I do? Is there a self-effort in sanctification? Well, spending time in the Scriptures, listening to and meditating on, God, on what God has said, changes our thoughts, our affections, changes the heart towards holiness. So yes, we have to make that effort. Spending time in prayer, formulating your thoughts and the aches of your heart, trying to put words to these things that we might think about them, that we would take it to the Lord. Yeah, that changes the mind, the soul to depend on the Lord. What about fellowship with believers? 
How many of you have treated somebody more like Christ based on how you saw somebody in this fellowship act? Like how many of you have been nicer to your wife because you see the way that this couple over here, this couple over here, they treat each other? Yeah, it's like, you know, I would have said, but then I see the way that Steve treats Jackie and I think, wow, I'm going to be silent here. But you see the way the fellowship lives out the commands of God and you say, I see the love that this couple has. I want to be like that. I see Christ at work in you. I want to be like that. Those are the means of grace. Spending time serving, spending time suffering, spending time giving, these all play a part in us letting go of the world that we might be transformed into the image of Christ. These are all good things. Holiness through all of these. So then if I have to do it, doesn't that mean that This is like a two-powered system here. I mean, I have to put in the effort, right? I could give you a simple example. In the same way that you feed yourself and it turns into energy, there's a mic drop moment right there. We don't feed ourselves and then think, all right, let's break that down. And in our mind, we're breaking down food and we're watching the digestive system. And whenever we get low on energy, we just have this thought like, hmm, more. And you put more in. And as you're feeding yourself, you have energy. You're animated. Is that dual powered? Is the fact that you pick that up, put it in your body for nourishment, is that dual powered? Is it Synergistic is the word versus monergistic. Christ has done these things. He has laid them out that we would walk in them. That we would get up and just, you know, the sanctification of the scriptures, that we would get up and walk across the room to grab our Bible. Is that self-powered? Who gave us the power? Who gave us the ability? Who gave us the desire, the will to say that to read the scriptures are more important than to scroll the Instagram? Who did that? And I could just give you the example, run to and fro to those who don't love the Lord. Which one would they choose? And but by the grace of God, so would I. My task is simply to not resist. But we can go on autopilot, can't we? We're doing well in this. Whenever I said self-sanctification, how many had that like <clears throat> moment? Because whenever we hear self-powered, self-this, self-worth, self Yeah, the idea then is like, well, then it's all bad. Well, no, we are to pursue holiness. Be holy. There's a command. We are to be holy because he is holy. So we have an effort in it. We have to comply. We can't resist. But the power to do that is just like our natural bodies. So we have to be discerning here. Is man... is Satan against you changing? Is he? In many cases, a certain lifestyle will inflict damage upon your life and you desire to change. I have these conversations and so do you. People who say, oh yeah, well I just need to quit. You can fill in the blank. Because they have found something that the consequences, that the life that it is now manifest is a problem. For Satan, change is fine. Change is great. So long as, what? 
the heart of man, the fallen heart of man, is not against change. It is against the cross of Christ. We can run around changing our lives all we want, but it is of the will of God that we would turn and become like Christ. That's his work. The unregenerate man is more than willing to change so long as he doesn't have to become more like the one that he finds to be his enemy. He doesn't want to love him. And whenever we go on that autopilot, because we have habituated righteousness, we've habituated kind ways to treat others, we then begin to miss the cross. We begin to lower our eyes, and it's something that I can do. And I need to try harder. And, and we hear this all the time with conclusions that, you know, it's like, yes, I confess my sin to the Lord. And the prayer ends with, so Lord, help me to do better. I'll, I'm going to start doing better. Whenever the prayer is, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, do these things in me. May I be willing. May I pursue these things for your glory. But we never want to miss the cross. In my, my own strength means that I could have done this without dying to self. So think of the things, and I have some examples here, of what we could do that it does not matter if Jesus ever came and lived and died. Self-sanctification, we could do these things without the truth of the gospel. That's self-sanctification. Do you want to be a better spouse? Just learn how to cook and clean up after yourself. Wives, would that help? You want to be a better employee? We know how to do that. You go the extra mile. Simple things would help you to be a better employee, a better soldier, show up early and go home late. There's effort that you could put in. That doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. There's virtues that the world has that there's no need to be a Christian to do that. Be more tolerant. Well, maybe that was a bad example because the world is becoming far less tolerant. None of these require sanctification. None of them require that Christ would die. But do you want to be more patient? Do you want to be more kind? Do you want to be less envious, more hospitable, less proud? Do you want to be rid of sins of laziness? that would go into mindless distraction rather than spend time with the Lord? Do you want to be one who serves with joy? Who gives joyfully? You need Christ to become your sanctification to grow in that. If it's an issue of giving, that Christ is my sanctification, I have grown over the years in a joyfulness in giving. If you're unregenerate, the more you give, what do you start to expect you don't grow in the joy of giving because the holy spirit christ has not become your sanctifier and oh how easily i forget that we have a a comment a short little quip in our house it often sounds like well you know i'm praying about this or you know, we need to pray about this. And my response is, are you praying about it or just thinking about it? Big difference. Because we often, as Christians, we have the biblical means of stuff, but we just think about how trials. We just think about how we would like stuff to go without taking ourselves to the cross and putting to death ourselves that we might live to Christ and so pursue for Christ the goals that we want. Prayer has just become one of those words that you just, I mean, that's, pray about this. Oh, I've been praying about this. You have? And sometimes we confess, no, actually, can you sit down with me and pray? <laughs> just been thinking about it all day. But how, how apropos is that for the change process that there's matters with which we know how to change it, so we go about changing it but it accrues to our sanctification whenever we take it to the Lord. 
like the good DIYers. Do I have any other DIYers in here? If you are a good do-it-myselfer, what's the first step? You, you take the box or whatever it is, you, you lay it out. What's the first step you take? You take the instructions and you throw them away. Thank you. <laughs> you throw them away. This way, I can do this all on my own, and if it works, then welcome to my world. If this works, then the, it, you can praise me. I'm smarter than the instructions. The key is, men, make sure you look at the picture on the box so you know what final form looks like. But whenever it doesn't work, do I then blame myself? No, I, they didn't put enough parts in the box. I think this is the wrong one. What did they even sell us? What's the return policy on this? It's that same way that if Christ has given us his word and then we try to do it myself or the first thing we do is throw the instructions away and I am going to, okay, he said, be kind. Here we go. And I live a life as if Christ never died. He never became my sanctification. Do you know how frustrating that is to be kind without the Holy Spirit inside of you? I shouldn't be so emphatic. You guys will think that I'm thinking this about you right now. (laughs) Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, beware of self-righteousness. The black devil of licentiousness destroys his hundreds but the white devil of self-righteousness destroys thousands. We always want to be suspicious of our good works, suspicious of our change. For Hebrews 4.13, we are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account, so we must always go to the cross. When our sanctifier called us to follow, where did he go? To the cross. Which brings us to the final. You are in Christ Jesus who became to us redemption. The conscience of man will not excuse him. He knows that on the judgment day, his life is not acceptable. He knows that. So he redefines what the law is, redefines who the lawgiver is, tries to accumulate enough evidence for complete exoneration. But he knows. The wisdom of God, however, says that the wages of sin are death. And those wages will be paid. So he doesn't wipe those clean. They will be paid. We either pay them ourselves or we have somebody who would pay them for us. The world's wisdom says, build yourself up a case against God in his word so that whenever you stand before them, you can blame that you're on the part of the curve with which gets exception. Or redefine them. You know, he's, he's really not like he says he is. He's loving, right? So he would never do this. The whole goal, though, is to live the way we, or the way the fallen mind would want and to redeem themselves. But if we know that we have that debt, then we know we need a Redeemer. We know, as the Lord said through Ezekiel, the soul that sins shall die. How would God demonstrate His love, His mercy, His compassion if He wasn't to save people? In order to show he's merciful, he would have to show mercy. In order to save people, he would have to save people. So he doesn't leave it up to us for our redemption, but he says, in order to prove this, I'm going to have to do it. And here's my plan, that I would send my son for you. I'm not going to put this on you. You need a redeemer. Old Testament, they knew it was coming. You read the book of Ruth, that, that's what she was longing for was a redeemer. A shadow of what was to come. Job 19, for I know that my redeemer lives. 
And at the last, he shall stand upon the earth. So there's that shadow. He knew that there would be a redeemer. Isaiah 59, a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. We hear that from the Old Testament. This is what his effect is going to be. He is going to be a redeemer. 28 times in the Old Testament, we have them speaking of their needed and coming redeemer. When the image showed up, what was his name? That they saw in part, but then they turned to see the image. And they said, not only is he God here on earth, but he is our Redeemer, the one who goes before us. What would that Redeemer do? Jeremiah foreshadowing it. In chapter 50, it says, Their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He will surely plead their cause that he may give rest to the earth, but unrest to the inhabitants of Babylon. When Christ came, what did he say about giving rest? Come to me, who, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So we saw it coming. This is what the Redeemer will look like. And then you have the one, the image saying those same things. I will give you rest. Come to me. But as it says here, and also unrest to the inhabitants of Babylon. To those who are against him, he said, woe to you. But he comes and he lays down his life for his brothers, which is not unfamiliar to us. That Christ became our redemption is a common theme. The reason we're in this passage is because I think it's uncommon for us to understand that Christ became our righteousness and our sanctification. We often carry those ourselves as though we're to be righteous apart from Christ and become holy on our own efforts. But that Christ is our redemption, that is a great boast. And in doing that, Romans 8, 29, and 30 says this, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called So there's our, he became our righteousness. And to those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Praise the Lord. We could have never done this on our own. And if I were to scan your emails, I don't think this was your plan. I mean, I don't think any one of us thought this up. But God, in his wisdom, sent his son a wise plan, much wiser than the world, that he puts on display that Christ would be our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. And it's no doubt that we've done many wonderful things in our lives. We have been faithful to our family. We've been loving to our spouse. We've been loyal to our employers. We've given to the needy. We've planted seeds We've ministered the gospel. But we have not redeemed a people for God's own possession. We've not set aside our glory to become in human form. We've not been obedient to the point of death on a cross. We've not done all these things to bring a people to God. That was Christ. And like a proud sibling, we can boast about what he's done. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this. We are we are foolish running around trying to be our own defender, our own change agent, our own redeemer. And you have called it as it is, Lord, that that is foolishness but that the wisdom of God has sent Christ to be all of those things for us. And what it takes, Lord, is a confession of that and a turning. The things that we hear about Christ from the Scriptures, it is for us to turn to Him and see Him and embrace Him. And we thank You, Lord, that that turning is of You. It's something that You have to empower 
the only thing you call us to, Lord, is to cry out for mercy, that you might be merciful. Everything else, Lord, you have done. And you prompt that call as well, so we thank you. Lord, may we grow in our conviction of these things, that we would be people more faithfully rooted in the truths of the Scripture. And Lord, we know that it would please you to do these things. So may we rejoice in it. May we boast in it. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.